Um, the title, if you're taking notes, is The Kind of Leader We Need. The Kind of Leader We Need. <coughs> Why don't we pray as, we, as you're turning there. God, we come before you. And Lord, it's our desire to, uh, to look to you for guidance, for truth, uh, for wisdom, uh, for reassurance, Lord, for assurance. God, we look to you for all things uh, because, God, we know that you are everything to us. And Lord, we say all those things, we confess those things, but oftentimes we're distracted by the things that we see in the world. We are often pragmatic. Uh, we often settle for less when you offer us so much more. And so, God, I pray that this morning we would once again be realigned to your will and your purposes and promises that you have for your people that you reveal in your word. And I pray that this morning we would be just a little bit more like your son Jesus when we walk out of this place, more than what we were when we walked in. And so we pray that, God, you would do what it is that you have purposed to do today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the kind of leader we need. We're going to look at Exodus 17, verse 8, that last little section of the chapter in chapter 17, and then all of chapter 18, that wonderful story. But again, the kind of leader we need. And as I was thinking about this, the world is not lacking in leadership resources. And what I mean by that is from books to podcasts to conferences to organizations to just examples that we see every day, there's an endless amount of information and all of it promises to make you a better leader or to be led by a better leader. And while many of those resources may be helpful, not all of them, we must acknowledge, are biblical. And this is because the Bible presents leadership in completely contrasting ways to what the world promotes. So <clears throat> if someone wants to lead or be led in a godly way, just know that oftentimes, if you look to the world's examples, it will often chafe with what, the, what God's Word says. In fact, all you need to do is just survey the gospel stories and see how different the leadership Jesus portrayed against that of the culture in his day and how often that conflict led him into aggravated assault by his contemporaries. And I bring all this up this week because in the book of Exodus, we are going to be instructed from two stories on the topic of godly leadership. And there's kind of one aim or one thing I want to persuade or convince you of this morning, and it's this, that the quality of godly leadership is shown in how a leader deals with conflict. I'll say that again. The quality of godly leadership is shown in how a leader deals with conflict. Now, that is not to say conflict management is the only quality or test of godly leadership, and I'm not even suggesting that it's the greatest quality of godly leadership. I'm only focusing on that aspect of it, that singular focus, because it seems to be the thing that is in focus here in the text. Godly leadership and the way that leaders inevitably experience 
and handle conflict that comes their way just by being a child of God, but at the same time called to lead God's people. So that's where we're going this morning, but a little quick recap before we get started. Last week, we looked at three stories uh, that show how God meets our needs when He healed the bitter waters, when He gave manna, this bread from heaven, and when He gave water from the rock. And what we saw from those stories is that God, how He's not only able to meet our basic human needs, but how by doing that, He proves that He is capable of meeting our greatest spiritual needs, which of course He has already done supremely in the person and work of Jesus. And so we're continuing a little bit on with that same progression. As we come this week, we're going to see how God meets our needs as a community, uh, how He's met that societal need by providing and shaping leaders to guide His people and to be an example of faith for them in the midst of conflict. So we're going to look at two stories today. We're going to consider each of them individually and their unique contributions to the subject of leadership. The first story shows how leaders, and by extension, I guess all of God's people, are to engage with external conflict. That is the conflict that comes at us from the outside, from the world. Primarily, you could think about it in the form of spiritual warfare. And then the second involves how leaders engage in internal conflict, primarily how they deal with the matters inside the community of faith and ultimately lead to cultivating spiritual health and growth. So we're going to look at the first one, and then we'll look at the second one after that. But let's look at the first story, which is in 17, 8 through 16, and <coughs> a section I'm titling Leadership and Spiritual Warfare. So this is what it says in verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." There's two names that are worth highlighting in this story. The first, obviously, is Joshua. Uh, This is the first time that we are introduced to this character in the story, though he will eventually, really from now on, become a significant character in the story of the Exodus. One day, as you all know, he will succeed Moses in leading God's people into the promised 
land. Nevertheless, this is the first time that we get to hear about his name. And what we were told about Joshua here, that at the request of Moses, he assembles a small little group of warriors and fights with the people of Amalek. Evidently, Joshua had a reputation of being someone skilled with the sword and having the courage to fight and lead others to do the same. So Moses chooses him and he goes out and fights. Again, we're going to learn more about Joshua. All that is to say here is we are introduced to him. The other name that's worth highlighting, of course, is the antagonist in the story, and that is Amalek. And what we need to understand is that Amalek is not just some strange nation or king to the people of Israel. In fact, Amalek was the grandson of Esau, Jacob's brother. We read of his genealogy in Genesis 36. So there's this family connection is what we're seeing here. Uh, I think their thanksgivings probably wouldn't have been very good at that time. But this family connection, I think, gives us insight as to why this battle happened. It was because of a deep, deep history of animosity and hatred. And if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that Jacob tried to smooth things over with his brother Esau in their lifetime. And to some degree, he did, but it seems that time did not heal all those wounds and bitterness and resentment in that family tree. And so now the descendants, generations later, these two brothers, these families are now thrown into an all-out war instigated by Amalek. He was the one who attacked them. However, this is more than just a family feud. There's more to this story than what meets the eye. There was really a spiritual darkness at play here with Amalek acting as an enemy of God and as a tool of Satan. Just listen to how Moses recalls this event years later on. This is in Deuteronomy 25. He says this, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. In other words, how Moses remembers this event was that Amalek waited like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, waited until that right moment when they were weary and tired from their journey and how he attacked the weakest members, the women, the children, the elderly, and he did so because why? Because he had absolutely no fear of God in him. And so what this story is showing us is that even though the enemy was defeated decisively in Egypt, he didn't settle for that defeat just yet. And he used the the family conflict with Amalek as a weapon to attack God's people while they were at their weakest. But the focus of this story is not just simply about how Amalek attacked God's people, but the reaction of their leader, the reaction of Moses to this conflict and this spiritual battle. And and what do we see Moses did? Uh, Well, in one sense, he went to war himself. 
Though it wasn't on the battlefield, he didn't go join Joshua with the literal sword in his hand. Instead, he said, I'm going to go up to the hilltop with the staff of God, that same staff that he would hold up and the plagues came, the same staff that turned into a serpent, the same staff that uh, divided the Red Sea, that same staff he took to the hilltop and from that vantage point, he interceded on behalf of God's people. And what is clearly shown in the story is that though Joshua's leadership on the battlefield was indispensable, they would not have won without Joshua, it was Moses' leadership on the hill in prayer that gave them the victory. That's the point of the story. And so the first principle, I think, as we gather thoughts about Christian leadership, the leadership that we need is that we get from this text And how leaders deal with conflict is that they wage war not with the sword, but with prayer. Which sounds ridiculous, to be honest, from a human level, doesn't it? Doubtfully, you will listen to a podcast or a book produced by secular culture and and they'll include a chapter or a section in there on how good leaders pray. (laughs) That's what they do. They go in their closet or they gather together in a room and they pray. But this is what the Bible presents as godly leaders, how they lead and wage war against the enemies. It takes courage to pray. It takes character. It takes faith to say as a leader, my job is is to labor in prayer for God's people. Yes, some are called to go to the front lines, metaphorically speaking, whatever that is. But some people are called, really all Christians are called, to the hilltops to pray. The apostles knew this in the New Testament. When the needs of the early church in the book of Acts, when they were getting overwhelming and there were so many just regular basic human needs that were coming up, they decided, you know what, we can't, we can't do all of this busy work uh, of serving. We need to raise up other people to do this because this is what they said. They believed that they needed to focus on the ministry of word and prayer. And some would think, are you serious? What could be greater work than, than feeding people? And, and, and that's true. It, it's a great work. But the apostles knew, you know what, they can do that work But none of it is going to be worth anything if we don't labor in prayer. And for that matter, even Jesus in his final hours of life on this earth, instead of teaching his disciples more things, instead of going out and healing all of these people like he had been doing, what did he do? He decided to take a few of them and go to the Mount of Gethsemane where he labored in intercessory prayer for them and for all, really, who would come to believe in him on account of their witness and testimony. But I want you to notice some things about this prayer as well, that he intercedes for them, so he's standing in the gap, mediating, I guess you could say, between God and the people who are at war. But notice also, he has to persevere in prayer, even to the point of physical weakness and exhaustion. And And I think the picture here is Moses was a great man, and yet Moses was still just a man. And as a man, he needed to learn how to persevere, and he knew he had limits. 
Thankfully, he was helped by a few others who not only uh, were there with him, but they interceded with him and supported him as well. And as he prayed and as he grew weak, he needed his brother Aaron and her to hold him up even as he was lifting up Joshua and his army and by extension, the whole nation of Israel up in prayer. Prayer is how spiritual battles are won. And we are called to persevere in prayer. In fact, Ephesians 6, that that famous section that uh, we all know well about the armor of God that all believers are to clothe themselves daily in for the spiritual battles that we face all the time that wage war against us. Paul ends this way. He says in verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we clothe ourselves in the spiritual armor, but our activity in the spiritual battle is prayer. Remember this, that nothing gets done that's worth getting done without prayer. Nothing gets done that's worth getting done without prayer. So The story ends with the defeat of Amalek, but in one sense, it doesn't end there because this battle marks the beginning of an ongoing conflict with Amalek and his descendants and the descendants of Israel as God declares that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, which really just is to say, it's kind of a picture and a metaphor, that God will always make war against his enemies and the enemies of his people. And one day he will utterly destroy them from the face of the earth. Until then, God's people, especially those who are called to serve as leaders of his people, are to intercede and persevere in prayer in the midst of that spiritual battle. And we are to do so with this hope in mind, that a greater Moses has come. And after Jesus, who, yes, in his humanity grew weak, but in his divinity does not grow weak or tired. And after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven, we are told that from that moment on, even till right now, until the moment that he comes again, guess what he is doing for us right now? He's on the hilltop, metaphorically speaking, interceding for us, praying for us, advocating for us before God so that we might win the spiritual battle. Friends, we have assurance that we will have victory. This is why Paul says we walk forward in triumphant procession. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. And he is always making intercession for us. And unlike Moses, like I said, he does not grow tired or weak or faint. He is 24-7 interceding for you. But that's what we are to do. Following in that same model, we are to persevere, we are to intercede. That is how leaders engage in external conflict. We do it through prayer. Now let's look at the next story. Only this time it's focused not on the external conflict that comes at us, but the internal conflict. Because, newsflash, we also have conflict in, in the community of faith, right? We have conflict in the home. We have conflict in the church, Internal conflict happens 
And leaders and Christians, all of us, need to engage in that same conflict in hopes of cultivating spiritual health and growth. And so we're going to talk about that, but there's a, a setup to the story that I want to get to, and it's in chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. So this first part I'm going to talk about is leaders inspire faith. That's one of the first things that they do internally. Let's look at chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. I'll, I'll just stop right there and just highlight. Notice what Jethro heard. He heard all that God had done for Moses, for Israel, his people, how the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Jump down to verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Let's just stop right there. In this first scene of this next story, we are introduced to Moses, or reintroduced to Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. We met him earlier on. Remember, after Moses fled from Egypt the first time, he ended up uh, in Midian, and he meets Jethro, and he ends up marrying his, one of his daughters. And now, here they are, reuniting, after everything that had happened. And he tells him everything that has happened, and it was a joyous occasion. After all, not only does he get to see Jethro again and tell of all the good things that God had done, but he's reunited with his family, with his wife and his two sons after being apart from them for a while. And though this scene is really just setting us up for the next part of the story, which we will get to in a second, there is still principles or a principle of Christian leadership that we should see in this story, which is that Christian leaders proclaim the good news of what God has done in hopes of inspiring faith and worship in others, in their here. In this case, Moses declares to Jethro all that the Lord did in delivering his people out of Egypt. Look at in verse 9. We see the response. He rejoiced at this news. In verse 10, he blesses the Lord. And in verse 11, he makes his personal confession. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the other gods. And in verse 12, he makes a sacrifice of worship to God along with all the other leaders of Israel. What a great reunion. But notice that along with Moses telling Jethro all these great things that God did. Notice in verse 8, but he didn't leave out the bad things. 
It says, he, tell, he told them about the struggles that they had along the way. And, and I think this is good because this is what leaders do. They share the whole story of how God saves people, the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the rewards and the costs of being a follower of Jesus. And the goal, again, is to persuade the listener to respond in, in faith and worship through an honest testimony of what the Lord has done. But like I said, this story is, is primarily here to set up what's happening next. So let's pick up again in verse 13 in a section I'm calling Leaders and Spiritual Health. This is 13 to 27. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. I love that. <laughs> you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens." And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. We'll stop right there. There's so much to say about this story. It's one of my favorite stories in Exodus. But the question we need to ask is the why question. Why is this story here in Exodus at this point? What point was Moses trying to make to his audience then? And therefore, by extension, what point is he trying to make to us? And, and it seems that whatever his main point was, it probably had something to do with what I suggested earlier, that the quality of godly leadership is shown in how a leader deals with conflict. Now, in a historical sense, this story is probably put there 
to remind Israel or to show Israel why they have the theocracy, the, the governmental structure that they still had at that time. It was probably showing the inception of that. This is where that came from. But, but why that? What was the point? And again, it was probably to show that the quality of godly leadership is shown in how a leader deals with conflict. Again, the question is not if a leader will encounter conflict, even among the people of faith, but when and in what form and to what degree will that conflict come. And in this situation, Moses wasn't dealing with conflict directed at him, like the prior stories, remember when they were upset for not having enough food or, or not having enough water? They were attacking Moses for things that were outside of his control. And yet here, it wasn't direct conflict, it was indirect conflict. He was dealing with conflict between others and hoping to resolve that conflict that was happening between them and the community of faith. And then Jethro comes and he observes what Moses was doing, and in a loving way, he approached him on it. And I want you to pay attention to what Jethro does. He doesn't come to Moses with just a list of all the problems, but no solutions, right? Instead, he exposes the problem, and then he offers a reasonable solution. And what exactly was the problem? Well, in one sense, Moses was the problem. And that's what I love about this story so much is, remember, Moses is writing this story. And if anyone wants to make themselves the hero of the story, why would they put a story like this in where they're clearly the ones that are at fault, that are making a mistake? So Moses, the author of this book, is essentially recalling a time in his ministry and in his leadership over God's people when he was not leading well. And he wasn't doing it in a healthy way. But it wasn't because he was arrogant. And, he, and it wasn't because he didn't feel like anyone else could do it. Instead, it just appears as if he got caught up in the pattern that many leaders get caught up in, which is he was reacting instead of leading to the issues that were going on. And as a result, he was burning himself out and everyone else. So in general, this situation wasn't healthy. And Jethro noticed it. So by the grace of God, Jethro, he's got an outside perspective. He comes in and he brings the problem to the surface. And as he did, he gives him this reasonable solution. And again, it's important that both of those things go together. So what was the solution? Essentially, it was this. Moses, as a leader, your main job is this. Coupling the last story, your main job is to pray your main job is to minister the Word of God to the people, but your third job that you're not doing well is you need to raise up other leaders. It can't be all about you. You're doing great with the first two. You're praying well, and, and you're ministering the Word well, but you are failing miserably at the third thing. You need to raise up leaders around you, and, and Jethro gives him more advice. So Moses is probably going, well, how do I do that? And he tells him in verse 21, uh, look for able men <laughs> from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place these men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and, and of tens. In other words, look for people who have competency, who are capable, who desire to do it. 
um, who, who are known by the people that they are going to be leading, people who more than are known by the people who are known by God, who know God and who love God and fear God, and, and those who have a good reputation, and, and significantly, I think this is a big one, they don't, they hate a bribe. They don't just love money or not love money, they hate a bribe. Sounds a lot to me and maybe to you like the qualifications of an elder that Paul lists in Timothy and Titus. But in this, he advises him a structure of leadership. And the good news is that all of this advice sounded great to Moses. And in verse 24, we are told that he listens to Jethro and he does it. He takes his advice and he runs with it. So what are we to gather from this story about leadership? Well, first, leaders will encounter conflict, but the test of a leader is how they handle it when it comes. And one of the biggest things we see modeled here in Moses is that he was transparent. He was willing to admit his short-sightedness just by including this story in the book of Exodus. Uh, he was transparent about his weaknesses as a leader and how God at a time in his life helped him to be a healthy leader of others. The second thing we see is that Moses was teachable. When approached by Jethro in this way, he wasn't defensive. He wasn't offended. Instead, I think to some degree, he was relieved. He was in a hole and he didn't know how to get himself out of it. And thankfully, his father-in-law came and gave him some advice, and he began to immediately apply that advice. But I think it's crucial that leaders are and remain teachable. Third, he began to raise up more leaders. The mark of a leader is not how many people follow them or like their videos on Twitter or whatever, it is, or their videos on YouTube or whatever it is, um, but in how many people they empower and how many people they raise up to lead in the spaces God has called them to lead. And what is amazing about these qualities is that we see all of them perfectly demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus, who is, as we know, the greater Moses, the greatest leader of the story. Moses is just a, a type, a foreshadowing of a greater leader who will come. Jesus, in his humanity, was willing to be vulnerable with his disciples and showing them <coughs> in every way that he himself was tempted and yet, unlike us, continued on without sin. In Hebrews, we are told that in his humanity, Jesus even learned obedience through his suffering. Furthermore, Jesus as the greatest leader who ever lived, chose not to take all the mission of God on by himself, but instead chose to enable and empower and invest himself, not in thousands of people, but in 12 ordinary men from Galilee. Again, you think leadership principle from the world, you got to get yourself out there, you got to get your brand going, you got to influence hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and Jesus is like, no, just give me 12, and I'll turn the world upside down. And he did. From these 12 men, from these disciples, eventually 11, he turned the world upside down. Friends, this is, going back to the title, this is the kind of leader we need. And the good news is that this is the kind of leader that we have in Jesus. He prays 
for us. He ministers the Word to us. I mean, He is the Word, but He brings the Word to life in our hearts, and He raises up leaders, even still today, pastors, teachers, evangelists, as Paul says in Ephesians, not to do ministry themselves, but to equip everyone else to do the work of ministry. And as I was thinking about this text and thinking about our church, this is what our hope and desire is and our commitment is here, is that as we do these things, as we commit ourselves to prayer and to the world or to the word and to building up others and empowering them to lead in the spaces that God has called them, that we will see what they got to see in their day. We'll see victory in our spiritual battles and we will see health in our church community, extending out even to our families and hopefully into our community at large. But to that end, why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and, and as I said earlier, nothing gets done that's worth getting done without prayer. God, we can plan, we can do all of the mechanics right, we can say all the right things, but if we do not come to you, if, if you don't do it, it doesn't matter. If you're not there, the watchmen watch in vain, as your word says. If you don't enter into somebody's heart and help them to see our words don't mean anything, they fall on deaf ears, God, you have to do it. You have to wage war against the spiritual forces that are against us that we are powerless to defend or to fight against. And so, God, we come before you because we know, and even if we don't see it in a tangible way, we know that your church is under attack everywhere. Your people are under attack everywhere, and you know this. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would defend, that you would protect and that you would win the battles for your people, God. We pray also for health within our body of believers here, uh, starting with families. I pray for healthy marriages and, and uh, those who have kids still at home, God, that they would experience just a healthy culture where it's being led by your word and, and by your spirit, God. And we pray again for a healthy church. Conflict will happen. Uh, but God, I pray that we would remain united in you and, and in your word and what it is that you are doing. But God, we <coughs> commit ourselves to these things and we thank you for who you are and all that you have done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.